Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of The New Abnormal. And we thank you so much for being here. Today, we have an extra special bonus episode with Gary Kasparov, who's, of course, a former chess grandmaster and world chess champion, was then turned to be one of the leading voices against Vladimir Putin in Russia, and he's going to explain to us what he thinks is going on over there with the Ukraine and Russia situation. Welcome to the new abnormal, Gary Kasparov. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I just want to know how you grew up in the former Soviet Union. When did you get radicalized? I'm not sure I like the word radicalized because it's probably more of getting normal. It's, it's my, uh, my journey from uh, uh, abnormal to normal. <laughs> <laughs> Soviet Union was a communist dictatorship, and I grew up as a kid who was uh, surrounded by this propaganda from very early days. Soviet Union, it's a peaceful country, great Lenin, communism, decadent West, you know, it's all sorts of stuff, you know, uh, aggressive America, CIA, Mossad, MI5, whatever. Right. And it took a bit of time for me to actually see it through, but um, naturally my home education helped. My father died when I was very, I would say young, I was seven. And uh, my um, grandfather, uh, my mother's father, he was a diehard communist. And that definitely had also an impact on one side. But my father's younger brother belonged to these Jewish intellectual circles in Baku, in the city of Baku, where I was born and raised. It's a I always say it's a deep south uh, right next to Georgia, so which is because uh, Republic of Georgia was next to Republic of Georgia in the deep south of the USSR. And I had access to books because I was very curious. I, I was a voracious reader. And also as, as a chess prodigy, I could uh, uh, travel at a very early age, first inside Soviet Union. And then at age 13, I represented uh, Soviet Union at the first uh, under-16 World Championship in France. And uh, that trip was quite an eye-opener eye because I could see the difference. I came back and I, as someone with a critical mind, I couldn't help comparing things and reading books and, uh, and listening to the propaganda and, uh, and then uh, just analyzing it. And it didn't take long for me to understand that uh, the gap between reality and Soviet propaganda was too big to cover. At very early days, in, as a teenager, I already saw that the, 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 the way that the Soviet Union was built and the country has been developed, it uh, was wrote the perdition. It was abnormal. So that's may call that you may call radicalization by the Soviet <laughs> standards. Though right. until I became world champion in 1985, so I played uh, by the rules because all I wanted is to win the title. And naturally, being half Armenian, half Jewish boy from Baku was not uh, sort of great asset of playing. Uh, the darling of Soviet system, a Russian champion, Anatoly Karp. 
that's the first phase of, of what you call radicalization. <laughs> yes. And the second one began after I won my title in 1985, became the youngest world champion in history. And I knew already that I um, could afford more than ordinary Soviet citizens. Because in the Soviet Union, chess was one of the most influential games. The Soviet propaganda always wanted to use chess as a demonstration of the communist superiority over decadent West, like intellectual superiority. And that's why the world champions, they carried very special um, prestige uh, in the eyes of the of the Soviet citizens, uh, almost like a sacred cows, so, uh, or high priests of, of um, uh, intellectual dominance of the Soviet Union. And uh, I turned this, this uh, uh, status into um, my advantage, uh, trying to, to push for, for opening up. Of course, I was lucky. It was Gorbachev who was in power. And uh, the Soviet Union was gradually opening up, though I was not happy with the pace of the reforms because uh, I th- saw quite early that Gorbachev's plans were to modernize socialism, modernize communist uh, uh, state, make it more competitive, but not to turn it into democracy. How long has it been since you've lived in the Soviet Union? The Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Well, I know, but I mean Russia. How long? I, I spent first 28 years of my life. Yes, I was born in 1963. So, and I, I was... Uh, I was very happy to see the end of, of uh, this monstrous state in 1991 because I was already a very active part of, of um, anti-communist opposition. It's the uh, nascent democratic uh, movement in Russia. I was the first uh, Soviet athlete who refused to play under Soviet, uh, under Soviet flag all the way back in September 1990 when I played my fifth and the last world championship match against Anatoly Karpov. And it started here in New York City. And I demanded to have a Russian flag a Russian tricolor, not uh, not uh, the red flag of the Communist Party, and uh, uh, it was it ended up with um, with open conflict, and after Game Four, uh, the International Chess Federation under pressure of the Soviet delegation, Karpov delegation, uh, removed both flags, which fine with me. So I was quite pleased uh, that the no more Soviet flag was standing uh, at, at at the table, and uh, in 1991. I thought, as many of us, that that was the end of history. It's the, we all remember the great book of Francis Fukuyama back in 1992. So calling the end of this uh, clash between uh, liberal democracies and, and totalitarian ideology. And we all thought that it, you know, the, the future would be bright. But unfortunately, you know, we forgot that the evil, evil doesn't die altogether. It could be buried for a while under the rubble of Berlin Wall. But the moment we lose our vigilance, the moment we turn complacent, it sprouts out. For me, another stage of my active engagement in this fight against totalitarianism and against uh, KGB dictatorship began in the year 2000, when to my horror, uh, I saw the uh, KGB lieutenant colonel, Vladimir Putin, took over from Boris Yeltsin. And while the whole world was mesmerized by the young, strong, uh, dynamic new Russian president who made many good statements, I heard something else. I heard Putin's own words. The collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Or another quote from him, once KGB, always KGB. There were no former KGB officers. And for me, those were harbingers of perilous times ahead of us. 
And I was not surprised that one of the first actions of Putin as the president of Russia was to restore the Soviet anthem. Again, another clear demonstration of where his heart was and what he would do if he would be given this chance. And unfortunately, the free world turned a blind eye on Putin's actions and even on his own words, like his speech in Munich at security conference in Europe 15 years ago, 15 years ago in February 2007, when he talked about return to the spheres of influence and uh, Russia's right to have direct or indirect control of neighboring states. When you watch now, what do you see happening? I'm not surprised because I've been saying all along about, about Putin's plans and also he quite helped, you know, just by confirming it, both by his words and his actions. After his speech in Munich, he attacked the Republic of Georgia. And uh, in 2008, I wrote an article saying that uh, since the free world showed no resistance to Putin's attempts to uh, redesign the borders and exercise control of the former Soviet republics, we could expect, you know, him going further and Ukraine will be next. People ask me, how did you know? I said, oh, I just looked at the map and I have no doubts that Putin would try to find good moment to seize part of Ukrainian territory, starting with Crimea, and also uh, will do his best to demolish Ukrainian sovereignty because democratic, prosperous Ukraine is the, is, is the greatest threat to Putin's dictatorship uh, in Russia. But I also said many times that while Vladimir Putin was our problem in Russia, and it also was a problem for neighboring states, many of them former Soviet republics, uh, he would be eventually a threat to everybody. Because dictators, they never ask why. They always ask why not. And if Putin could uh, go away with his aggression against the Republic of Georgia or uh, 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 other neighboring countries, uh, or he could get away with uh, his support to bloody dictators like Bashar al-Assad, Uh, his support of North Korean dictatorship or Venezuelan dictatorship, eventually he would see uh, the West too weak to oppose his direct actions inside the free world. So for me, Putin's attack on American democracy starting in 2015, an open assault by propping up uh, Donald Trump's candidacy, uh, was a natural continuation of his policies of building troll factories and fake news industry uh, back in Russia in 2004-2005 and exercising these powers first in Russian-speaking universe, neighboring countries, and then moving to, to Europe. And now he, he feels that he could, uh, he could do whatever. Though the last uh, few weeks, I think they, they it's, hopefully they brought him to reality because first time, American administration, it's the, actually the first American administration, there were four of them already that had this chance, but the first one that demonstrated that there were limits for Putin's expansionism. And uh, that's why I think Putin now is contemplating his next move, recognizing that those are not just words, not lip service, uh, not empty warnings, but could be serious consequences if he, can, if he would continue his aggressive expansionist policy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or... I prefer... Don't you... That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Putin is absolutely a dictator and he's power hungry and he wants to, I mean, everything we've seen shows that he wants to sort of reunite the Soviet Union, whatever that looks like. But my question to you is there also are, with Ukraine, there's an oil and gas component for him. And Putin has been very interested in in money. He has an opportunity here because of the way with the pipelines and the price of gas right now, where you know, he had he's turned off the spigot and he could turn it back on and make a lot of money and not go to war with Ukraine. Do you think there's a chance he does that or do you think he just is so single minded? Oh, that's, that's a, it's a great question because it uh, uh, reveals the uh, the true nature of Putin's regime. It's not the classical dictatorship of the 20th century. It's not just imperialism or ideology. It's more like a mafia state. You can say that every country has its own mafia, but in Russia, mafia has its own state. So Putin's power is based on money and control of money. And we have to recognize that he controls directly or indirectly more money than any other individual in human history. If you look at the, at the Russian annual budget, if you look at all the funds allocated by Russian government, if you look at all the fortunes of oligarchs, most of them just directly connected to Putin, we may end up with an amount exceeding $1 trillion. And Putin proved that he was not shy of using this money to buy 
call it favors from Western politicians, from Western uh, businesses. So when you look around, you'll find out that so many former politicians, uh, hopefully only former, uh, mostly Europeans, of course, are directly working for Putin, like former Chancellor of Germany, Schroeder, former Prime Minister of France, uh, Fillon, former Prime Minister of, of, of Finland, Lipponen. It's a long, long, long list. And Russian oligarchs have been most generous by donating money to the charities. And uh, guess, you know, how many of these billions and billions of dollars spent on charities in England uh, 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 or in European Union uh, being uh, found its way to, to the organizations that are related to, to policy uh, makers. So Putin built the most sophisticated network ever built to lobby his interest, and it's, he gets supported, as you pointed out correctly, from oil and gas. Russia has nothing else. It's it's all about uh, natural resources of Russia that being sold and 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 uh, profits being um, allocated in the hands of Putin's cronies. I said that it's the Putin found the magic formula of combining Karl Marx and Adam Smith. So it's he's nationalizing expenses and privatizing profits, and all the profits and and end up in the pockets of those related to him. But this money is not kept in Russia. It's not kept in China. It's not kept in Iran or Venezuela. It's in the free world. It's all way, you know, just uh, uh, from Riga in Latvia to San Francisco or from uh, Copenhagen to uh, Naples. Probably you can mention Australia as well. It's very important for Putin to make sure that this financial network is intact. But as everybody talked about sanctions, Putin laughed at them for a simple reason. He was not really affected by the sanctions, not neither him nor his oligarchs. You can simply look at a number of Russian oligarchs in the Forbes list. This number grew after Putin's invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea in 2014. No matter what Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, said about Putin, what Putin looked at is an amount of German gas that, that, that had been sold. So, and this amount doubled since 2014. So it's the first time when Putin could be facing a threat of Europe cutting this, this gas supply, though it's painful for Europe. Everybody understands it. But Europe buys one third of gas. It's worse for Europe than it is for Putin. This is about leverage. So Europe buys one third of its gas supply from Putin. Putin sells 80% of its gas supply uh, of gas production to Europe. So who has the leverage? But the problem is that corrupt European politicians, they, they never wanted, you know, to, to take a strong stand against Putin. But now, thanks to the change of the position of this current administration, hopefully Europe and most of Europe still, you know, Germany is lagging behind, France's position is questionable. But most of Europe now is, is lining up to, uh, to take the, the, the final stand against Putin. The Nord Stream undermines all of this, right? Yes, Nord Stream, and that's why I was very critical of Biden administration's decision not to sanction, I believe the sanctions against the Nord Stream. But I also understand the rationale. They tried, desperately tried, to bring Germany aboard. But Nord Stream is still, you know, it's, it's built, but it, it is still not open because it has to be sanctioned by European Union. And I think now that's what is part of this game. I think Putin understands that there is a real threat that if he attacks Ukraine, if his troops cross demarcation line again, and I said demarcation line because he already invaded Ukraine in 2014, then the, the, he would be running a real risk of Nord Stream 2 being shut down. It's almost like when Germany decided to sort of 
turn its back on nuclear power. They set themselves up for this. 2011, yes. After, 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 the, after Fukushima disaster, they made this decision, right. which I think was stupid, because as of now, this is the only, only alternative. If we want just to, to have the real, call it green policy, so there's, there's no alternative to, to oil and gas but nuclear. But this decision made them dependent on Putin. That's what Putin loved. Right. And that was when he really had the power. Yes, but look, you may call it what under the bridge, because Germany had years and years to build alternative supplies. Yes. Let's say this is that the, the nuclear was out of question, but there were many other opportunities to build alternative pipelines. So these, 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 the, the big, you know, uh, gas deposits in, in, in the Mediterranean Sea. So that's, just, that's next to Israel, between Israel and Cyprus. So, but you have to work with this. Then you, there's, there's the, the massive gas deposits and, and, and opportunity to build the gas pipelines from the south. It's uh, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. All of these projects required, and I'm not even talking about American shale gas, but all these projects required policy. It's strategy. And what's happened in, in Europe that, that's where Germany played dominated role, dominating role uh, under um, leadership of Angela Merkel. She was in power for 16 years. That they reneged on all these uh, alternative uh, pipelines, on all these um, opportunities to reduce uh, the dependence of Europe on Russian gas. So that's why they put Putin in a very powerful position. But uh, now, uh, look, uh, with America back in the game, America's leadership being partially restored, so Putin recognizes that uh, um, even with all his lobbyists and agents in, U- in Europe, mostly in Germany, Austria, and France, he may not be able to prevent real sanctions to hurt him and uh, NATO building strong defense lines against any possible aggression. Knowing what you know about your experience of growing up there and Putin and all of this, if you were Ukraine, what would you do? Well, look, I think Ukraine has been doing what it could, so it's preparing for war, uh, because the only way to stop Putin aggression is to be prepared for war. Uh, Putin will make a decision to cross or not to cross this demarcation line and attack, attack Ukraine further, to invade Ukraine further, based on his calculation of potential losses. What's the cost? And uh, the cost could be prohibitive. As of now, I think that Ukraine enjoyed first time in many years, uh, massive support from the free world led by America. Of course, we still have exceptions. Shameful position of Germany that refused to send a lethal weapon. Surprising to me, a Canadian decision, considering the 1.5 or so million Ukrainians living there, decision of Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau not to sell uh, um, a lethal weapon to uh, Ukraine. But you have uh, Great Britain, you have, of course, America. You have American allies like Poland uh, and, and Baltic states. So Ukraine is being prepared. It tells me that the cost, if you combine the potential military cost with thousands of body bags sent back to Russia, because then the war will be bloody, and also potential um, economic cost, because America may force now a German hand and to stop Nord Stream 2. I think the war is less likely these days. And also, I'm listening to Russian propaganda and the last 48 hours after they received the American response, which was fairly tough, they are changing gears. 
So it's 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 still very belligerent rhetoric. It's not like we're going to war tomorrow. It's basically, oh, uh, our enemies expecting us to fight, but maybe we should be smarter. So it tells me that there is the that there the growing hesitations in Kremlin. And if I have to give you my to give my forecast now, I think the war today is much less likely than 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 two weeks ago because first time Putin Putin met with a strong response from the Western coalition laid by the United States. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This was great. I'm so glad we got you to talk about this. Molly, always pleasure. Thank you very much. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.